Turn to Mark chapter 15. We are concluding the, with, a, with a fourth part of what could have been, if I was much better, uh, one whole message, which really began in verse 16, looking not so much at the physical suffering, but emphasizing and looking at the mockery and the emotional trauma and suffering of Christ on the cross. So we'll cover today verses 26 where we picked up a couple weeks ago and go all the way to verse 32. In 1707, Isaac Watts, one of the Puritans, wrote, When I survey the wondrous cross, and it is a marvel of a song, we're going to sing it at the close of today's service, Charles Wesley who also wrote a great number of hymns, said that he would, have, he would have given up every single one of his hymns in exchange for the privilege of, of being able to have written that one song. And Charles Spurgeon said, it is the greatest hymn ever written in the English language. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but, but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most I sacrifice to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Mr. Watts said all those thoughts came to his mind when he surveys the wondrous cross. As we come to this fourth examination on the cross of Jesus Christ as we've looked at his suffering, at his agony. Church, what comes to your mind when you survey the wondrous cross? Have you learned something new about the suffering and the dying of Jesus? Have you been able to deepen your thoughts on the suffering of Jesus? Are you able, as a result of the last several weeks, are you able to think more deeply and more profoundly? Has your mind been stretched even just a little bit over the suffering of Jesus for you? Or are you wasting your time here? That's not a question I can answer. That's only something you can answer as you survey your own heart and mind. But I do pray that you would soberly think about it. As I said, we're the the Gospels, all four Gospels, they touch on the physical suffering of Christ, but they emphasize the emotional suffering, the emotional, emotional trauma, the mockery. Of Christ, and we see two points today, two headings. 
which reflect that. Not his physical suffering, but his emotional suffering, the mockery. The first is the bogus title in verses 26 to 28, and then the blasphemous treatment in verses 29 to 32. Mark writes, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And if that weren't enough, those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Let's begin with the bogus charge, which Mark alludes to in verse 26 when he refers to the inscription of the charge. This is... The same tablet that had been uh, uh, written with big, bold letters and had either been hung around his neck or 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 vaulted high on a pole on a pole by the lead soldiers. He was paraded through the streets. It is now fixed to the top of his cross above his head, as Matthew tells us. And this inscription, which, as I said, it was written in very bold letters, either of bold black or a vibrant red It wasn't scribbled like a doctor's note. It was intentionally written so that it was easy to read, easy to understand. The Romans had the charge written in Greek, Latin, and Aramaic. Basically, all the languages of that region. Because Rome wanted every man, woman, and child to know this man who has this charge, who's hanging on this cross, this man crossed the line and now he has to pay. And if you want to avoid this man's grim fate, you best remind yourself, don't do what he did. Do not follow his example. Do not go where he went. Do not do what he did. Do not think what he thought. This man forgot his place and went outside the boundary of the law and the law caught up to him. And you may, you may ask yourself, what was his crime? What is the charge? What is, what is it that Jesus did that was so wrong that warrants him being crucified like a thug, like a, like a bottom of the barrel criminal? On this Roman cross. What did he do that deserves this kind of death? Mark tells us that the inscription of the charge read thus. The king of the Jews. That's the charge. And someone probably asked, well, wait, 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 what? What, what, what kind of a charge is that? I mean, he, isn't he the king of the Jews? It, didn't he tell Pilate as much? What, what, what kind of charge is that? That he is king of the Jews. How is that a crime? How is that wrong? Well, 
the intention of the inscription, what Pilate means by this, which I hope to make more clear as we as we look into the uh, following verses, is that Jesus is being executed. His indictment, his charge is that he is an attempted rebel, that he is guilty of sedition, of insurrection, of anarchy, attempted anarchy. He is a royal pretender who foolishly and vainly and quite frankly stupidly thought that he could rival Caesar. This man thought that he could rise, raise himself up as a rival to Caesar and challenge Rome, overthrow Roman occupation, liberate the Jews, set up a new government with himself as their king. That is what is meant with this charge. It's almost as if Pilate completely overlooked what Jesus said when Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. We know this charge is bogus. We know that Jesus posed no threat to Rome. As I just said, Pilate heard from Jesus' own lips, but an hour before this, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my soldiers would be fighting, which means if I were here to pose a threat to your boss, my soldiers, my armies, my forces would be fighting to get me out of here, to keep me from getting onto that cross, which you're about to put me on. But since they're not here fighting for my release... Even you can see I'm no threat to you, to your authority, to Caesar or his throne. We know that Jesus showed compassion to Roman soldiers, even healing the paralyzed servant of a Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8. We know that Jesus taught his disciples that not if, but when someone forced them to go one mile, go with them too. And the idea is, which which we even saw just a few weeks ago with with uh, with Simon of Cyrene being pressed into service. The idea is when a Roman centurion or a Roman soldier asked, to put it nicely, forced, pressed you into carrying their load for them, they had the legal right to demand you to carry it for them for a mile. Jesus says, you be the best model citizen. You go with them two miles. You go double what is expected of you. We know that Jesus taught his disciples not to withhold anything from Caesar that belonged to Caesar. Pay your taxes. We looked at that in Mark chapter 12. We also know that Jesus' two chief apostles who continued to unfold the teaching of Jesus taught that it is God's will to for his disciples to submit to the governing authorities. Romans chapter 13, 1 and following. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and following. Beloved, we know that the best citizens in the Roman Empire would have been the disciples who followed and obeyed the words of Jesus, of this Jesus, this Jesus who is being charged as an anarchist, a, a, a rebel, a terrorist. Even Pilate knew this was a bogus charge and, and Mark has even told us that much. Just look up, look up to verse 10. Why, what, what was Pilate aware that the, uh, that the chief priest had handed him over? Verse 10. He was aware the chief priest handed him over because he's a bad man. What does it say? 
envy. He knew it was political. Pilate knew this charge was bogus. So the question is, why? Why then did Pilate have this false, unsubstantiated indictment inscribed on this little plaque in bright red or black letters above Jesus written in Greek, Latin, and Aramaic for all the world to see? Why did he put this charge Because Pilate knows that the entire city just days earlier was hailing this man as their deliverer. All of Israel's hopes just days prior had been on this man. He had come to learn something of Jewish messianic expectations. I know that because the the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees explained to him in Luke that he claims himself to be Christ, who is a king. And I think they took that opportunity to explain to him uh, what the Jews expected Messiah to be. You know, Daniel chapter 7, a king, uh, one who would be given kingdom with a dominion without end, the son of David. And for Pilate and for all of Rome, the idea of Israel being saved, of being delivered, of being redeemed out from under Rome like a second exodus, that is a joke to Pilate. And quite frankly, it's a burn his saddle that the Jews are still still placing their hope in this Messiah who is to come, who will come and thwart Roman rule. And so he does his best to make a complete mockery of Jesus. He is using Jesus' suffering to his own end, labeling him as king of the Jews. You also you have to put air quotes around the title because it, it is a mockery of a joke. But he does this as a vivid reminder of how important it is for the Jewish people, the people of the land and the Jewish leaders as well. This is his, this is his attempt at petty revenge against them for all the 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 stuff that they've put him through. But he wants them to remember how important it is that they remember their place. And the, their place being under the boot of Roman occupation. This is the best man you can put forth as your king. <laughs> Any man you ever put forth as your king, as your long-awaited Messiah. Rome will do to that, him whatever I am doing to this man right here. So just forget about it. So that's the intention with this charge, king, king, ha, king of the Jews. What a joke. And to complete that picture, they, Mark writes in verse 27, they are the, the soldiers, the execution squad. They crucified two robbers. And this is, they crucified two robbers with him. And I try not to be, a snob who says, well, the Greek really says this. But unfortunately, this word, the, this word robber or thief, which is used, uh, which is what the, the translators use when they translate this word, it just, it really doesn't do uh, the meaning justice. These are not mere robbers or thieves. These are not cat burglars. These are not 
uh, thieves who, who uh, somebody who stole a loaf of bread like Jean Valjean in Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. This isn't Aladdin stealing an apple from the marketplace. Uh, this, th- th- these are uh, or, or somebody who, who had one fig extra in their basket when they left the marketplace. It, this word is r- more rightly understood to be uh, an insurrectionist, uh, a revolutionary, a rebel, or more appropriately, a terrorist. That's what this word means. To, 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 to use the word robber or thief, uh, I mean, technically that's true, but it's like, it's like taking a 700-pound tiger and saying it's a kitty. Yeah, it's, yeah, kind of, but not really. It's the same word that Jesus used when the Roman cohort, 600 to 1,000 armed men come up and he says, have you come out against me as if I were a robber? Same word. The meaning is terrorist. It's the same word John 18 uses for Barabbas, who we know was a murderer and guilty of sedition and civil anarchy. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, tells us not why, but just tells us the fact that the Romans used this word for robber or thief to label the zealots. The zealots, if you recall, was an underground movement of hyper-nationalists who used any means necessary to fight against Roman occupations. They did everything from sabotage Roman interests. They vandalized Roman assets. They conducted many acts of espionage. But beloved, what really put them on the map, what really got Rome's attention was the, was their assassinations of Roman soldiers and Roman officials and even of their fellow Jews who smelled of Roman leaning of Jews who weren't Jewish enough. They were feared and they were hated by Romans and Jews alike. So these robbers are very likely these hated terrorists who made life very hard for everybody. And now these two likely zealots are placed, as Mark tells us, one on his right and one on his left. Now, church, where have you heard that phrase before? One on your right, one on your left? Remember what James and John's request? Well, it was actually their mother who asked. Can we, we'd like to sit in, in, when you sit on your throne, your glorious throne in your kingdom, we would like to sit on your right and on your left. The most, the most important figure takes center stage. And it's, it's great if you can just be close. And so the intention of this, with placing Jesus center stage and these two zealots, with himself as the king and these two zealots on their right and on their left, is that Jesus is the ringleader of this vicious, untrustworthy, unruly mob He's the ringleader, they're the henchmen. And so Jesus is made to appear as though he is not merely one of these zealous fanatics, these rebels, these evildoers, these breakers of the law. You could also say these transgressors, but that he is the leader 
of these transgressors. He is not merely one of them, but he is the leader of them, which is exactly what your Bible will tell you in verse 28, if you have a verse 28. Is anyone missing? Uh, uh, and he, and uh, the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with the transgressors. And everyone has that? Not a single person is missing that. Okay. ESV does not have that. And it's, I'm not going to hold that against the ESV. That's, that's fine. This is what's called a textual variant. And I, I am trying my best to make this part as brief and concise as possible. But uh, in, in short, a textual variant means that may or may not have been in the very first manuscript that Mark wrote. There are many phrases, uh, words, phrases, verses, and on two occasions, entire entire paragraphs of these textual variants. The uh, One of the large paragraphs is the final 11 verses of Mark 8. Anyone know where the second one is? Nope. The story of the woman caught in adultery, let he who has no sin cast the first stone. Did you know that that is probably not in the original Gospel of John? Why was it added? Well, think about this. I'm glad you brought up Isaiah 53. How many times over the last several months have, have I brought up Isaiah 53? Once or twice? A lot. Okay. How many times have we, have we gone through the Gospel of Mark and I, 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 we have the Gospel of Mark here and I put Isaiah, I, I, I bring up Isaiah 53 and I put it right by side and I go, you look at that. Do you see a parallel? Do you see any similarities? Once or twice? So, so what, what is likely happened is sometime down the line, the scribes took an earlier, more authentic, more accurate gospel of Mark, and he's making his own copy, and he comes to this, this part of the narrative, Mark chapter 15, and he's, he, as I said, he's making his own copy, and he's reading about Jesus being presented as a would-be usurper, as a, as a zealot, as a rebel, as a lawbreaker, as a transgressor. And he would remember, because his minds, like, like I hope our minds have been, his mind has been constantly going back to Isaiah 53. When he comes to this part that where Mark says that he is king of the Jews and he is placed alongside these these transgressors he would remember Isaiah said that Isaiah said he would be numbered with the transgressors and so not not in an attempt to write scripture but just merely in the same way that you may write a footnote or you may scribble a little jot or a little something in your bible maybe on the side margin maybe down at the bottom he would uh, just trying to be helpful for himself he would add he would cite Isaiah 53, verse 12, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he would write it either perhaps above or, or below or, or somewhere within the block of the text. And then he would move on. And then he would, down the road, he would give his manuscript to somebody else who wants to make a copy. Because remember, for the first 300 years, there were no professional scribes. The The, the transcripts of the Bible were copied from house to house from disciple to disciple to disciple and you get you're fortunate enough to get a copy of mark that some that your friend has and you come to this part and you see this little uh, additional line and remember it's all it's it wasn't 
uh, printed versus handwritten. It was all handwritten. And so you see this, this extra little line and you think, well, maybe he made a mistake when he was copying it and he, he skipped some text. And so when you're copying it, you will include it in the text thinking it's authentic. And then you hand yours off to somebody else who knows none the wiser down the road. You have all these transcripts that it appears as if verse 28, citing Isaiah 53, 12, is authentic when it actually isn't. But here's the thing. This, that, that's except, uh, 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 suppose that Isaiah, that uh, verse 28 is not authentic and you take this verse out or you put it in. Does it change anything? Does it radically alter any traditional Orthodox Christian belief or practice? Does it, does it change anything? So does it really matter? Yes or no? The majority of textual variants, you'll hear a lot of people out there, oh, the Bible has all these variants and we don't really know what, yeah, we do know what it says because all of these variants don't change doctrine or practice. Most of the variants are grammatical. So there you go. There's, there's a brief lesson on textual criticism. So as I says, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't change or challenge traditional Christian doctrine or practice. And so it probably wasn't original, but nevertheless, it underscores Mark's intention to detail the fact that Jesus in his suffering is not only fulfilling scripture, but that he is as an innocent man, as a righteous man, as a man who doesn't deserve to be here going through what he's going through. He is here going through what he's going through. He is thought to be a despicable, dirty, law-breaking, criminal transgressors. He is numbered among the transgressors. Beloved, your, your Savior didn't die a nice, siren, tranquil, beautiful death. He wasn't surrounded by friends and loved ones and nobles or or the best of men, rather, he is surrounded by the worst of men. And not only is he surrounded by the worst of men, he is reckoned to be one of them. Even worse, he's reckoned to be the chief or king among them. That is the bogus title. And the bogus title leads to the blasphemous treatment. As the last four, three or four verses will show us. As Jesus hangs on this cross, he quickly becomes the object of even more pitiless, irreverent mockery. And as I've, as I said, the, yes, the crucifixion had indescribable physical trauma and physical suffering. Yet what the emphasis is on is not on that, but on the, the mockery that is hurled at him. The rejection of God's appointed Messiah. And there are three groups that hurl their mockery on Christ. Three groups that Mark puts before us. One are the Jewish people themselves, the Jewish pilgrims in verses 29 and 30. The second are the chief priests and the scribes, which is the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin in verses 31 to the first part of verse 32. And then 
If that weren't enough, we even have the criminals who are hanging on one on his right and one on his left at the conclusion of verse 32. Mark begins in verse 29. He says, those passing by. And this, this reminds us that Jesus has not been made a, uh, he has not been hung on a cross down in some gulch, down in some valley, down around the bend on some backwater street. He is on a main thoroughfare that goes in and outside of the city. He is just outside the gate. There are, he is hung on main street. There are thousands of Jewish pilgrims passing him by. Remember, Passover was the most celebrated. It was the most important festival and Jewish holiday of the year. Israel or Jerusalem would swell from around 80,000 natural inhabitants or native inhabitants would swell up to about approximately 4 million people. There are thousands. I mean, there, there are Disneyland crowded streets, thousands of people passing him by. It's not the occasional bystander. And as they are coming and going to, to continue their observation of the Passover week, Mark tells us that this first group itself is doing three things. One, they were hurling abuse at him. And the word, the, the root word is they were blaspheming him, which means to slander, to speak evil, to verbally abuse. And quite frankly, I think hurling abuse is a very fine way to describe what they were doing. They are using their mouths. They are using their vocal cords. They are using their voice to do anything and everything they can to make Jesus suffer. You were told as a child to use your words, express yourself. Beloved, they were using their words to put the hurt on our Savior. He is suffering. Maybe you've heard another one. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. What fairy tale did that come from? Who hasn't been brought to tears? Who hasn't been broken down to a weeping nothing because of words that people have used? Words can be devastating. Words can hurt. Words can cut you to the quick. They are insulting him. They are mocking him and, 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 and uh, hurling abuse. It's in the imperfect. They, they aren't just saying it once. They are saying it and they're coming back and they're saying it again. Oh, and another thing. Oh, and another thing. Oh, yeah. And this too. They are insulting him. They are mocking him. They are ridiculing him. They are chastising him. They are belittling him. How dare you pretend to be somebody you're not? How dare you get our hopes up? How dare you toy and play with our hopes and our emotions. How dare you toy, toy with the people and manipul- manipulate us? How dare you lie to us? You should never have been born. God have mercy on your soul, because we sure won't. They were hurling abuse at him. And along with the verbal 
uh, abuse comes a, a physical gesture. They were, Mark says, they were wagging their heads. And this is just, this is a natural expression. If you're just, if you've ever laid into someone, haven't, haven't you just ever gone like this? Oh, you, how could you, how could you think you would get away with this? How could you? It's just, a, it's a natural thing. It's just wagging the head. It is a, it is an expression of arrogance, of, of utter contempt. And this is another illusion as I, uh, as I, um, uh, brought up when we looked at his clothes, his garments being divided, how that was a fulfillment of Psalm 22. Here is another fulfillment of Psalm 22. They part the lip, they wag the head. And Mark doesn't, uh, Mark just, uh, subtly alludes to that because he's going to directly quote Psalm 22 down in verse 34. So I don't need to dig into this right now because I will next, uh, in the subsequent week. So they were hurling abuse. They are, they are expressing their disgust and their contempt for him physically by wagging their, or shaking their heads. And then they are saying, uh, ha! This isn't a giggle. This is not a, this is not an LOL or a smirk. This is, this is a, this is a mocking laugh of derision. This is, ha! This is a, a gloat. This is a, a self-indulging glee, gleeful gloat over a foe, over an adversary, over somebody who is, who, who is defenseless, who has no leg left to stand on. And, uh, because of that, you are overjoyed. This is a gloat over somebody you do not like and you are happy that they are down. Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple. You who are going to rebuild the temple in three days. Which you will recall is one of the false allegations made against him during his illegal trial. Remember, where was, where was he being tried? Where we heard this? In the temple? In the public courts? Where was he? In the chief priest's home. At early a.m., brief minutes, perhaps an hour after he had been illegally arrested, false testimony had been raised up, perverting or twisting what he had said in John chapter 2, where, where he is saying, you will destroy this body, and he's pointing to himself. He says, I will raise it up in three days. They are changing it. They are perverting what he says. And, and imagining he is uh, uh, portraying him as saying he is going to destroy the temple, the physical temple, which I don't know if you knew this, took over 80 years of artisans and craftsmen and, and entire teams and divisions of, of workers to build with the resources of Herod. You're going you're gonna to take that temple, you're going to destroy it. In three days, uh, and, and raise it and rebuild it in three days, and the fact that they are that they are slandering him with this false charge that he never really said, but that was said that what that was brought up against him in a private illegal trial in the middle of the morning, it's now being thrown at him and hurled at him by thousands and thousands of common joes. Beloved, that should tell you how quickly gossip 
and misinformation can spread. This, can, this ought to show you how damaging and devastating gossip can be to one's public opinion. Every politician knows a little mud can go a long way. You who, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it, how can you do that when you are hanging there helplessly naked and ripped to shreds on a cross? I mean, are, are we wrong to say these things about you, O King, O Jesus? Are, are we wrong? Prove it. Prove us wrong. Do something about it. Do something to prove that you can do it. After all, you did save others. Save yourself, big man. Big man with big claims. Ha! What a loon. Now there's two, there's two ironies in this that I want to make a big deal about, but for time's sake, I won't. I just want to briefly say that they are goading him to save himself because he could allegedly save others. The irony is, is by not saving himself and by staying on the cross, he is saving others. The other irony is that by staying, by staying, that they think that he won't be able to destroy the temple because he is going to stay on that cross. The, ir- the second irony is by staying on the cross, he is going to render the temple and its sacrificial system utterly useless. He will bring an end to the temple and its sacrifices because he is staying on the cross, because he is not saving himself. So that, all these things are this first group. Not religious leaders, not scribes, not the priests, not the, not the elites who have had it, who have had, who, upon whom Jesus has been a burr in their saddles for three years. These are the people doing these things. These are the people of the land. These are people like you and me. They are hurling their abuse. They are wagging their heads. They are goading and taunting and slandering him and perverting his own words against him. Those are the passerby. Now, now let's look at what the Sanhedrin does, who, which I, I might add should have been busy at the temple. They should have been busy uh, processing and inspecting and butchering uh, the Judean Passover lambs. They, they should have been otherwise involved in leading the people in devotions. But no, they are, and ironically, here, here's another irony. They should have been uh, 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 inspecting and, 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 and uh, processing the Passover lambs. Ironically, they are addressing the Passover lamb. Oh, there's, there's too much irony in this, but I, for, I'm, I'm moving on, moving on. So let's look at what the, the Sanhedrin does verse 31 in the same way the chief priests along with the scribes were mocking him among themselves so so where the people are addressing him addressing him directly they are speaking to him 
they, uh, perhaps they're a little further back, they are mocking him among themselves. And the idea is, is they're not speaking to him. They're speaking to one another. They are congratulating one another. They are justifying every, every underhanded, dastardly deed and uh, an act that they have done in the last week to, to get him on the cross. They are justifying it. They are congratulating themselves. They have been planning for years to destroy Jesus. Now their work has been accomplished. Check that off on their to-do list. And they justify themselves. He, he saved others, but he can't even save himself. Saving others refers and points back to the entire ministry of Jesus where he has healed people. He has healed men and women and children. He has healed them from disease, from disability, from demons, and also from death. But the saving also anticipated a larger saving that Messiah would bring to Israel, which, which you can see that is included, that is implied in their, in their words by the, by what follows this Christ, this King of Israel. Wolvard tells us that all, uh, a theologian from Dallas Seminary says, that all of Israel's hopes for the glorious future God had promised them centered. It, they, they all rested. All eschatological expectation centered, rested, laid upon the coming of Messiah. Messiah would not just be a good teacher. He would not just be a philanthropist. He would not just be uh, a, a, an Ask Jeeves he would not just give advice or, or give you uh, cool things to put on the, the little, your little fortunes and the fortune cookie. He would be a powerful, dynamic, effective, victorious ruler. He would be a king who doesn't merely inspire. He would be a king who delivers. Again, Daniel 7. Verses 13 and 14 says that the ancient of days would give to this Messiah, this son of man, dominion, rule, the right and the means to reign. And that that rule and that reign and that dominion would never end. And it would know no limits. Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 7, of the increase of his government... Wait, how'd it go? Of the increase of his government, it will never stop increasing. Okay, if you're going to quote a verse, you need to know the verse. It will never stop. I, I, know, I, I, know, I know the gist. Isaiah 9, 7 says that the increase of his government will never stop increasing. All of Israel's hopes for a glorious future rested on the coming of the Christ. Every single one of them, not some of them, not most of them, all of them. And with all of Israel's hopes resting on Christ, their question is, is how can this Christ? What they're asking is, how can this Christ be the Christ? How can this Christ, this King of Israel, 
How can he save us from the Romans if he can't save himself from the Romans? How can this Christ be the Christ? Implied answer, he must not be the Christ. What were we worried about all this time? Why were we ever afraid of him? And so they taunt him, just like the people. Let this Christ, let this king of Israel who allegedly is going to redeem us, who allegedly is going to kick Pilate and Herod and Caesar out, let him come down from the cross. And if he does, we will, we will believe. We will see and we will we believe and we will get in line. This is just unbelief looking for one more excuse, one more proof. And I hope you know you can never satisfy a heart of unbelief with evidence. So that was the, those are the religious leaders congratulating themselves and justifying themselves for all their sinful, vehement, hate, hateful, vitriolic attitude towards Christ, their rejection of Christ. Third, we see, as, as if this isn't enough, that those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. And Luke records in chapter three, 23, verse 39, that they are also taunting and goading him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and save us. They were all, Mark, Mark simply says, they were also insulting him. The point is, and, and we know from Luke that one of them would go on to be saved and would become a trophy of, of Christ's saving work. Mark wants to emphasize that Jesus is completely alone. Jesus has no friend. Jesus has no ally. Jesus has no advocate, no defender, no paraclete. There is no respite, there is no reprieve, there is no sympathy in his suffering to the extent that even those who are sharing the same fate as his, they join in in the mockery. Think about that. Their, the remain, their remaining miserable lives for whatever, it is, whatever they are, they think their lives are a little bit better because they can join in on the mockery of one who they think is even worse off than themselves. Complete and utter disgust, hate, and rejection by all. And so I want to conclude with a question, which I'm going to answer. Why was Jesus' death so horrid? Why was Jesus' suffering so terrible? Why is this trauma, this physical and emotional trauma, so great? Do you have an answer for that before I tell you what I think? Let me give you three reasons why Jesus' suffering was so great. The surface level reason is because men utterly hated him. Men delighted in Jesus' suffering because they hated him. The people of the, the land, the common Joes, they are severely disappointed because their expectations, which were off, by the way, rose so high only to crash and fall 
when the real Jesus, when the real Christ didn't match up with the Christ of their own imaginations. And we know why the religious leaders hated him. He's been a burr in their side for three years. But Jesus' suffering was so great because the hate against him was so great. But that's the surface level. If you, go, if you dig a little deeper, did you, did you notice that all three groups are taunting him, are tempting him? Come down from the cross. You saved others. Save yourself. You're the Christ, aren't you? Save yourself. You, you said you were going to rebuild the temple in three days. Come down. Prove us wrong, big man. Big shot. Do you think there's something deeper beneath the vitriol of men in here? Yeah. Satan himself opposed the suffering of Christ. Remember, think back to uh, Mark 8.31. Peter himself said, may it never be. What did Jesus say? Peter, your understanding of what I'm about to do is off. What did he say? Get behind me, Satan. Satan opposed the cross And Jesus is suffering because he knows it means his defeat. And he is working through all three groups. In John 12, Jesus said that the, that the, if the son of man is cast, is lifted up, this, the ruler of this world is cast out. Colossians 2, uh, 13 and 14 says that the, the rulers and the authorities were disarmed when he took away the, the debt, the certificate of debt that was held against us. And Hebrews chapter 2 says that in the, in the cross, Jesus took away the greatest weapon that the, de- that the devil ever had, and that was the fear of death. Satan knows that the cross means his utter defeat. I mean, he's a theologian. He knows, he knows Genesis 3.15. You're going to bruise his heel. He's going to crush your head. He knows Isaiah uh, 53. But on the deeper level, on the deeper level, Jesus suffered so greatly because God desired and planned and purposely planned to greatly bless you through his suffering. Did you know that that God intended you to gain from his suffering? Did you know that? I hope you do. I've been saying it for a couple weeks. I want to read to you, and this will be incredibly rich as we approach the Lord's table. What is, what is yours if you are a believer in Christ? Remember I said earlier, I began with what comes into your mind when you survey the wondrous cross. Here are seven things that I think you need to be thinking of as we approach the Lord's table today. J.C. Ryle, who is a uh, an English, Anglican pastor in centuries past said that there is deep meaning in every jot and tittle of his sorrows. First of all, we see Jesus delivered into the hands of Roman soldiers as a criminal condemned to death. He before whom the whole world will one day stand and be judged allowed himself to be sentenced unjustly and given over into the hands of wicked men. And I ask you, J.C. Rell and I both ask you why? It was that we, the poor sinful children of men, believing on him might be delivered from the pit of destruction and the torment of the prison of hell. J. 
Jesus suffered so that you might be free. One consideration. Secondly, we see Jesus insulted and made a laughing stock by the Roman soldiers. And this is going back to uh, verse uh, 16 or so. They clothed him with purple and derision. They put a crown of thorns on him in mockery of his kingdom. They smote him on the head with a reed and they spit upon him as one utterly contemptible and no better than the filth of this world. Why? It was so that we, vile as we are, might have glory and honor and eternal life through faith in Christ's atoning work. He is scorned, he is rejected so that we might be accepted. Thirdly, we see Jesus stripped of his garments and crucified naked before his enemies. The soldiers who led him away parted his garments, casting lots upon them. Why? Why was he stripped naked and hung on a cross? It was so that we who have no righteousness of our own might be clothed in the perfect righteousness that Christ gives to us instead of standing naked before God in our sin. That's a third consideration. Fourth, we see Jesus suffering the most ignominious and humiliating of all deaths, the death of a cross, the punishment reserved for the worst of malefactor. Why? It was so that we who are born in sin and children of wrath might be counted blessed for Christ's sake. He hung to remove the curse with which we deserve because of sin. And he got rid of it because our curse was laid on him. Fifth, we see Jesus reckoned a transgressor. And here we get to where we are today. We see Jesus reckoned a transgressor and a sinner who is crucified among two thieves. He who had done no wrong and in whom there was no guile was numbered with the transgressors. Why was he numbered with the transgressors, church? It was that we who are miserable transgressors ourselves, which is evident both in our nature and our practice, may be reckoned innocent for Christ's sake. There is an exchange, beloved. Do you see this? Do you think I'm just making this up? Or do you think J.C. Ryle's making this up? Or do you see the biblical connection? It was done that we who are worthy of nothing but condemnation may be counted worthy to escape God's judgment and not be pronounced guilty before the world. Christ suffered so that you would be counted worthy to escape judgment. So that you would be counted worthy not to suffer. Lastly, we see Jesus mocked when dying as one who was an imposter and unable to save himself. Why? When he could have come down from that cross, when he had every right, and he certainly possessed the means. Why did he hang there? It was that we in our last hours, through faith in Christ, may have strong consolation. It all came to pass that we may enjoy strong assurance and that we may know whom we have believed. And what you must believe is that Jesus is a strong man who boldly embraced the cross and all the suffering set before him. The cross didn't catch him by surprise. He knew it was coming. 
And he went upon that cross and he embraced the hard work that it took to save people like us. And so let us go down into the valley of the shadow of death, fearing no evil, because we know Christ suffered for us. That's why his suffering was so great. So my prayer is, is as you survey the wondrous cross, that you would be thinking of these things and that you, your thoughts would be a little deeper and a little more profound as you think about the suffering that Jesus undertook for us.